From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is the future of aerospace and urban air mobility. More than delivery drones and rockets to the moon, think about how an extensive air transportation network could be built for people and cargo. Now, think about autonomous vehicles in the air and in space. How is digital transformation compelling even the most innovative industries, like aerospace, to work differently to build the future? Two words for you. Agile innovation. My guest is Dale Tutt, Vice President of Aerospace and Defense Industry for Siemens. Prior to this role, Dale worked at the Spaceship Company and in December 2018 led the team on a successful flight into space. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Siemens. Welcome, Dale. Hey, thank you, Laura. I'm very happy to be here today. So to start off with a context question, what is the current state of aerospace and urban air mobility? And could you define urban air mobility? I, I just, to me, it, we are in such an amazing period of innovation uh, with all the new entrants that we see in, in all kinds of aerospace and, uh, ventures, if you will, uh, whether it's high-speed aircraft and companies working on, you know, the next presidential air, uh, aircraft uh, that will be a you know, hypersonic uh, aircraft, a little company like Hermes, uh, space exploration companies, you know, like what SpaceX is doing, but also uh, Rocket Labs. And, and there's hundreds of startups that are working on this kind of like a, you know, Virgin Galactic, like where I used to work. And so, and then of course, urban air taxi, or I'm sorry, urban air mobility or air taxis. I mean, most people that refer to urban air mobility, these are the uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft that are really being envisioned to be able to fly above the gridlock in these large urban areas uh, and really as a Uber-like service. So you had Uber Elevate that was working on this. And so really, you know, these air taxis, there's hundreds of startup companies that are really going to transform how we move about these large urban areas and doing it in a sustainable manner because it'll be electrically powered. So pretty cool stuff. A lot of excitement. It's been a long time, I think, that we've seen this much innovation going on in aerospace at, at this time. Very exciting to think a urban air taxi. You would just, I don't know, hail it like a, a Jackson's <laughs> moment where this, <laughs> a vehicle would come down and pick you up and, and whisk you away. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so how does this translate to enterprises and the defense industry? Well, you know, with a lot of the enterprises, the incumbents in these industries are really under a lot of pressure to reduce their own cost and schedule and, and to really become much more innovative themselves and, and how they're bringing new products to market faster. There's just more pressure on them. And a lot of these startups are being you know, funded by really visionary people that are really looking to transform uh, the aerospace and defense industry in general. So you know, a lot of these companies are looking to how do they restructure their business so they can become much more agile, that they can move faster and, and in some cases, you talk to some of these large companies and they want to become like these startups. And so, it's, you know, they see the success that these companies are having. They want to be like them. And the defense industry, we're seeing many of the same trends. The defense industry itself needs to reach a much higher level of collaboration between their defense agencies and the OEMs, really with the purpose to accelerate the development of these new capabilities that they need to deliver to their customers 
the in this case, you know, the, the men and women in the services. Uh, but um, you know, and they really need to accelerate the acquisition progress. And and when you think about what these companies are trying to achieve and what these defense agencies are trying to achieve, they're they have lofty goals. Some of these new aircraft programs, they want sixth generation capability at half the cost and schedule of fifth generation capability. And you know, if you look at the history where it's always been an ever increasing cost and schedule to develop these new programs to come in and say, you know what? I want more, but I want it for much less than before. You know, to achieve those goals is really going to require a change in the way you do business and adoption of digital technologies and agile innovation. So uh, OEMs, original equipment manufacturers, an example of that would be something like Lockheed Martin? Yes, or Northrop Grumman or Bombardier, uh, Boeing. The companies that are primarily responsible for delivering the, the finished aircraft uh, usually referred to as the OEMs, and then they have their tier one and tier two suppliers that, that that provide parts and components to them. So much like other industries, the aerospace industry is now seeing its own pressure from startups entering into the space, and this is now requiring everyone to kind of work in a very different way. Absolutely. I think it's just these these small startup companies, they many times they don't have any legacy processes. And so they're starting up and they're, they're really able to set up, um, you know, take advantage of some of the latest technology and some of the latest processes. And they're moving very fast with small teams and they're as a result. And I think some of these, the existing companies, the incumbent companies are now, you know, they're trying to respond to that and go just as fast as they are. So for something like an air taxi or an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, what is the product development life cycle like now? Really, it starts with a concept. And, you know, a lot of times they're really trying to optimize their product architecture. And, and oftentimes you'll see these companies, especially the startup companies, uh, that as they're going through their development cycles, they'll build a prototype and they'll start flying it uh, because they're trying to learn about it. They're, they're trying to learn about the flight characteristics of their, of their product. And, and then they're also using that to help support uh, some of their funding rounds. And so then as they move from there, you know, they, that concept, they'll move into preliminary design where they really start optimizing the subsystems on the, uh, on the aircraft, because you're really trying to take weight out. You, you, especially with the electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, you really have to be very weight conscious because you want, you know, you need to be able to provide, you know, cabin comfort, but you also need to be able to provide performance. And then they move into a more detailed design phase and start, building prototypes and going through a certification process. Uh, and then eventually once they start, you know, building aircraft and then delivering them, they'll, they'll have to start supporting these over, uh, you know, who knows, you know, 30, 40 years in some cases. Uh, when you look at aircraft today, they fly for 50, 60 years with no problem. And so the companies have to support them for a long time. So there's a bit of a standard cycle that's involved, but uh, they do, you know, moving really, you know, from a, you know, still have to move through a traditional a bit of a traditional design process. They're just doing a lot faster. Well, that's a very good point. We expect aircraft to have a very long shelf life, and that's not necessarily um, how products are built these days, where you have constant new versions being released, uh, new phones every year. Uh, that's quite a challenge for something like the aerospace industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's part of it is driven by, you know, just safety and you need, you know, the reliability that you want to have that when you're flying around that, you know, that you can safely operate, you know, the vehicle. So there's a certain amount of durability and reliability that's just built into the design of the product. 
And then I guess maybe that starts to drive towards the fact then that it lasts for a long time. So the amount of investment that these companies or that an individual would make in buying one of these aircraft, uh, that they, you know, they really have an expectation that they're not going to spend, you know, half a million dollars on something or a million dollars, or if you're buying a business jet or an airliner, maybe 50, 60, a hundred million dollars, depending on what you're buying. You know, there, there's an expectation that it's, it's going to last a while and that you're going to have value in that asset. So uh, it's a little bit different than some of the consumer goods that we buy and it's more expensive to repair them than it is to replace them. And that's, it's just the opposite is true on some of these large airlines and, and large, you know, large uh, transportation systems like that. So how does agile product development and agile engineering factor into innovations for aerospace? I think it, it can be a bit of a game changer. It's when you think about how programs have been traditionally run, in really what you know is called a waterfall uh, approach or you know you know the very serial process where you go through each design phase and then you you evaluate everything and then you you move on to the next phase and maybe start building it and then testing it i think what's happening now is companies are trying to understand how do they take the lessons from agile software development and, and apply those to agile product development so you know, agile software development is is easy. It's I shouldn't say it's easy, uh, but it's uh, it's where you can do regular software builds and testing. And so the whole premise around agile is that you you develop a little bit of software with a small, really focused team, and then you can build do a software build and you can test it and and you can go through these iteration cycles really fast. And so the cycles of learning occur very quickly. But when you start talking about you know an airplane or an air taxi, uh, it's pretty expensive to build a prototype and test them. And so you have to think about it in, in a different way and, and take a different approach. And so it really takes special, you know, takes pretty good program planning. Sometimes people go, well, agile products, you know, agile development is kind of chaotic. No, actually it's not. It's, it's, it's pretty advanced in how you structure your program so that you can plan different sprints. And so when we used to do agile product development for, you know, some of the programs, we'd think about, you know, like one week was wing chunk and the next week was was fuselage chunk and cockpit chunk and we would move through the different phases of the or different sections of the of the airplane design but we'd all be focused on the same area so we could really advance the maturity of the product very quickly but i think now what's really also changing is not only are you able to structure your program a little differently to support different sets of milestones but it's really being enabled by the comprehensive digital twin so instead of using actual physical prototypes that you build and you go test more and more companies are now starting to utilize virtual verification to analyze the performance of their product as they continue to design and build it as well as virtual manufacturing to know that they have that they can actually build it so when they get done with their development processes they know that they have a product that will move into the test program and certification program very easily but also that they have a really good path to being able to build it before they start making a lot of investments in their manufacturing facilities. So, so it's, it's in some sense, it's kind of like agile software development where you're really utilizing the virtual world, the digital world to, to test your product before you, uh, before you actually have it available to fly it. Which certainly makes sense, uh, especially with such a massive investment into some of these products. Yes. Yes. It's, I mean, you know, time is money and you, the capital investment I, is, is huge. And, and some of these products like these air taxis, I, I've seen, some of these companies quoted where they think it might take up to a billion dollars to certify these products. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty sizable chunk of change 
when you think about, you know, the amount of investment that it takes to get there and then, and then how they're going to recoup that over time. So anything that you can do to make sure that you go through that process with as few changes as possible, taking risk out can really uh, have a significant uh, cost savings to the programmer. Maybe a better way of saying it is, you know, by eliminating the risk, you eliminate some of the opportunities for big cost overruns and schedule delays. So what other benefits can companies expect by adopting agile practices, saving time, saving money. Those are kind of two of the most important things, but it sounds like risk is also something to consider. You know, we always talk about, you know, time is money. And if you can go faster with a smaller team and you can avoid those cost overruns, then you can reduce your cost and your schedule overall. So there, this cost and schedule tend to go hand in hand. And, and I guess, you know, sometimes, you know, the risk really influences the scope of the program is if you have to add big you know, efforts to redesign your product or to make changes to your manufacturing process. So that is obvious, you know, that's one of the obvious choices or I'm sorry, one of the obvious uh, benefits of, of this, but I, I think there's a couple benefits that are maybe a little bit more intangible. And one of them is that you're being able to be much more responsive to your customer's needs uh, by bringing these products to market faster. There's you know, you reduce the amount of time between you know, when the customer expressed what they would like to have, uh, and, and by being able to deliver faster, uh, you know, this is going to sound kind of funny, but the customer has less time to change their mind or to have interest in new products and new, new, new options. And so being able to bring these products to market faster, uh, you're being much more responsive to what your customer is asking for. It's, you know, you're not saying, okay, well, that's a great idea. We're, we're going to go build it in 15 years from now. We'll deliver it to you. That's, that's not what the customers are looking for. And I think, you know, one of the other benefits an internal benefit that a lot of these companies have is, you know, companies that are implementing it, or they're finding this much more positive for their teams. Their teams are feeling much more empowered in how they're working together. They're working in smaller teams, very collaborative uh, teams that are really helping to break down silos. So you eliminate some of those internal frustrations and it transforms your program management. Because you're moving from just focusing on meeting these arbitrary milestones during product development to really, what are you doing to help mature the product baseline and ensure you're delivering the product that the customer is actually looking for? And so, so it really does transform your, your processes for program management and also transform some of your uh, processes that you have with suppliers. Because to be agile, you really have to, to, to ramp up the collaboration with your suppliers as well. So it really it just has a lot of internal benefits for how people work together and 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 be much more uh, collaborative and much more a much more effective team. And I like that emphasis on collaborating with your ecosystem and your suppliers. So it actually helps with sort of down the the chain um, effects where if you're building products in this agile way, then your ecosystem will have to start doing that as well. And it helps everybody actually speed time to market. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, you know, when you think about the traditional processes of the, the airframe company develops a spec and then they send it to the supplier and the supplier responds to it with a proposal. And then you start tossing things back and forth across the wall. When you start to adopt an agile approach, your supply chain becomes much more a, um, a, a team member, if you will, in that they're participating in developing the spec and they're able to bring capabilities that, that maybe wouldn't have been found otherwise. So the, when you 
just write a spec and then toss it over the wall to your supplier. They respond to your spec and they may not bring new ideas that may maybe make the product perform better. But when they're collaborating with you, even while you're writing the spec, then they're being able to bring some of those ideas and you, you end up with a, with a better product as a result. And so then they are seeing that benefit throughout the process because they're now invested in what they're producing. They're not just responding to your requests and, and they're able to produce it faster because they've had input into the specification for the part. So it really does transform how you work with your entire supply chain. And, and that's a very key element to being able to go faster is, is that you have to also help your suppliers go faster. And that's the benefit for the, for the OEM. Like the old saying, if you want to go faster, go together, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's uh, you know, small teams can go really fast, but they still have to go fast together. Uh, it doesn't matter if one guy wins the race uh, or, you know, finishes the race. Uh, the airplane doesn't cross, a, you know, does, isn't done until the last guy crosses the finish line. So you have to do, you have to go together. Yeah. So let's um, jump back a little bit and talk about how a digital twin, which is a simulated version of the product, works with sensors to collect data and how a digital twin can actually help inform product decisions. Because if you have this basically digital simulation running of the actual product, this is how you're actually doing agile engineering, correct? Yes, absolutely. And I think there's, there's a couple of things that where, how the digital twin can help, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the easy, you know, I guess the easiest answer is that because you have this virtual representation of your product, then you're able to look at many more examples or options uh, and maybe even test points. You, you have better data about how your, your, your product's going to perform. And so you're, you're predicting how it's going to perform. But, but the real value in the digital twin comes once you actually start doing testing on the real product and you have the sensors and you have the data from the usage. And so uh, using you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning and, and just you know, data analytic tools, by collecting that data and then using that data to update the digital twin, you can do a much better job of, of predicting the performance of, of your current product. And that can help you get through certification faster because you're now using, you know, you're leveraging the digital twin uh, in support of your physical testing. So this virtual testing is supporting your physical testing. And then once the digital twin, I'm sorry, once the product goes into, in, into service with your customers, as you're getting that data back, you continue to keep your digital twin up to date. You can start to use that to predict uh, better maintenance intervals, maybe even uh, in some cases, I you know think people are looking at how do you use that to optimize flight profiles, and so it, it really can change uh, and really add a, a an additional maybe additional layer of continuous improvement on top of uh, of the activities that companies are doing today. And, you know, the one thing I always tell everybody is that once you've gone through the process once with the digital twin and you've developed this product faster than you had, now this becomes a baseline for the next program that you start. And now you can use that to better predict your next program and you get some of those benefits again. So maybe you save 20% on your schedule the first time, the second time through you save another 20% and you keep doing this. And after a couple of programs, you've really made a, you, you've really transformed the way you do business and, and have made a significant change and impact in how, you know, how quickly you can produce new products. So how does AI, artificial intelligence, work into this? And it must be changing the way that products are being developed. Yeah, I think we're starting to see it showing up in a lot of different areas. And, and sometimes, you know, it's not as, as 
visible as what I was, you know, talking about with how you use data analytics and AI to predict, you know, maybe different maintenance intervals for your product. But what we're starting to see now is in some cases, it's as simple as your system starting to just learn from the commands uh, and, and the trends that the users are, uh, you know, as they go through and design parts or analyze parts, it's starting to recognize some of those trends and making suggestions. I, it's almost like, you know, you're autocorrect on your iPhone or your on your smartphone there where it starts to learn your habits and the words that you're using. Uh, and, and so you get a different experience than the person that's sitting next to you. And so that learning is going on in the background, really just changing the user experience. But we're also seeing part classification as people, as designers start to design new parts, they're able to, you know, the data analytics or the artificial intelligence is able to go in and look for similar parts. And now maybe you uh, enhance the, you know, get greater reuse of parts by doing that. And, and we're also seeing in some of our simulation areas and our analysis areas that uh, in the area of like additive manufacturing, where they're using uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to help predict the material levels faster and using fewer test coupons and, and basically getting more accurate results uh, in, in, in less, uh, you know, in, in less time and less money. And so it's, it, it's, it's making, you know, new material technologies available to companies to design with faster uh, than in uh, the previous world where we weren't using the, the AI technology. So it's really starting to show up in a lot of different areas, some very subtle areas like the user commands, uh, all the way up to the very visible areas of, of being able to use it to do predictive health monitoring on your product once it's in service. So paired together, how can AI in simulation as we discussed, the ability to run massive data sets repeatedly to determine various outcomes change the way products are made? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's one of the areas that when we, when we start talking about the, the automation, you, you, you bring the digital twin and you now are able to use AI to generate tens of thousands of options for your aircraft configuration or uh, or your system. And, and now you're starting to use constraints. Uh, and, you know, once you've defined your constraints, you're able to use your uh, AI and your machine learning to help predict the performance of, of all of these different systems. And now you start looking when you, when you start doing your design exploration and using simulation for your design exploration, you're looking at hundreds of, or, you know, I'm sorry, thousands of cases uh, and, and options and different scenarios with how your product's going to be operate, it's enabling you to see insights that were not previously available uh, as you look at these vehicles. And so just by, you know, through the automation, the optimization and, and being able to converge on different solutions and what you, you know, maybe were able to do in the past, you, you can come up with a completely different answer than you might've, you know, otherwise been able to find. And, you know, when we start talking about, you know, in the era of, more sustainability and and how our products are operated be you know you know zero emissions et cetera or even just lower emissions that that you want to be able to look at those options that can get that extra five percent and so uh, I, I think you know one engineer you know engineering manager that I talked to one time he says you know we really want to be able to look at thousands of cases when we only have ten or twenty people working on the program instead of you know 20 cases when we have a hundred people working on the program. And it, it, it really is just kind of an interesting way of looking at it, of using the, t the digital twin with, uh, with AI and with machine learning to really 
accelerate the ability to look at a whole lot of different options and uh, be able to make a much more informed uh, decision and come up with more optimal products. And that's really the whole goal of this, isn't it? Yeah. Better products for everybody. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So h- historically, companies have looked to aerospace and defense for the newest technology. So tell us, Dale, what does the future of aerospace innovation look like? Well, I think it's it's going to be really fun to watch what products start in technology start to make their way down into uh, you know, to kind of our everyday life. I think if you think about, you know, history as an indicator and you look to the development of the space program in the sixties and seventies, you started to see some of this technology, uh, you know, showing up in our everyday lives, things like Pyrex and ceramic materials for, for higher, higher temperatures and, and even electronics and, and some of the, uh, miniaturization that was going on, you know, in, in electronics, uh, a lot of that was starting, even, you know, even in the aerospace industry. So I think we're going to see that continue. We're going to see m- new materials uh, and new manufacturing methods that are being developed. And they're going to be, you know, some of these new materials are going to be enabled by additive manufacturing, which is a new manufacturing technique. And you can really get into the specific formulation of some of these, uh, some of these newer materials that will be stronger and you know, more resistant to temperature. I, with with electric vehicles, you're going to see. I mean, the obvious answer is you're going to see you know drives um, uh, developments in battery technology, but that's also you know that's kind of being brought about by automotive as well. I mean, everyone is investing in batteries right now, but even just in the electrical systems that you know as you start to design lightweight electrical systems, they start to get smaller. You start to figure out how to develop uh, you know better heat transfer methods. I think a lot of that technology is going to make its way into into a lot of our our household electronic devices as well, because you know the net effect is to use less electricity, and so you you, you will start to see that technology coming everywhere. You're, you're going to see advances in zero emissions, and that's going to change how we fly. You know, if you start to use hydrogen in aviation, either to directly you know for direct propulsion, where you're just burning hydrogen in a turbofan engine, or or if you're going to use hydrogen and fuel cells, that technology again will will start to creep into our everyday lives. We're you know we're starting to see some of that already, uh, and then just you know as we develop hypersonics and you know supersonics and all these high speed you know the space flight, there's going to be a lot of materials that come down and will increase the efficiency of a lot of our products. So I, I just I think there's going to be a lot of these technologies that are being developed by all these different startup companies today, they're going to, they're going to find their way in a lot more applications than just aerospace. It's going to be pretty exciting. It is very exciting. Thank you for this great conversation today and joining us on the business lab. No, thank you. I was really happy to be here and uh, uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you very much for having me. That was Dale Tutt, vice president of aerospace and defense industry for Siemens, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can also find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com.
This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.